that. So, and I welcome everyone to forum and I'm gonna click and let this, I just, wow, just snuck in there, um, this person. So this is forum, this is November 8th. This is the start of a three-part series of forums. I'm Damon, by the way, uh, I should rename myself. I'll do that in a little bit. Uh, I'm one of the pastors at First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska. Forum is our, uh, our hour-long adult Sunday school, Sunday adult enrichment time uh, together. So, and Dan Deffenbaugh is going to lead a three-part series on the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew colon a primer, I think is what we've officially titled it. Uh, Dan can change that if he wants. So, uh, Dan is our scholar in residence at First Pres Hastings. And um, with all that said, Dan, I, I turn it over to you. Hey, thank you. I'm going to share my screen here. And... Hopefully you all can see that. Uh, yes, even though it said Matthew a primer on, uh, on the materials, I've, I'm putting this in a larger series called Bible Biographies. Uh, you might remember several weeks ago, we talked a little bit about Moses. And uh, I better make sure I'm on the right place here. Yeah, talked a little bit about Moses. And um, it's interesting that Matthew is really fall, falls in line quite well with what we talked about uh, when we looked at our previous uh, our previous class. Uh, Moses being the great prophet of the Hebrew Bible, and of course that Sunday we were looking at Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down from uh, Mount Sinai uh, in Deuteronomy, finding the um, uh, the people there just engaged in all kinds of debauchery and idolatry. Um, but it was important for Moses to establish a covenant. And this covenant uh, with God, God established the covenant with the Israelites through Moses. Um, this covenant was going to be the guidelines. Uh, the, word, the, the word Torah, by the way, is, it means um, instruction. It doesn't mean law. We often think it means law, but it's instruction, guidelines as to how best to live uh, according to God's will for the world. <clears throat> The Ten Commandments are just like the, the summary. If you look at Exodus and uh, Deuteronomy especially, you will see how that summary gets elaborated and a number of, of uh, uh, guidelines that um, the he Hebrew people, the Israelites, are, are to adhere to. Now, why is this so important for us? Well, today, when we look at Matthew, uh, we're going to find that Matthew's understanding of Jesus is one that is not unlike that of Moses and uh, Moses's understanding of the covenant. I mean, in a word, Matthew wants to portray Jesus as the new Moses. Now this says a lot about uh, the, um, uh, the, the community to which Matthew is writing. And I'm gonna spend some time, um, if I can find my phone here, I thought I had brought it with me just so I can see what time it is. So you're all gonna have to help me out in terms of, of time. Um, darn it, oh well. Uh, <clears throat> I wanted to take some time to, uh, to look at the Gospel of Matthew over the next three weeks. Uh, and over the next three weeks, we will, we'll, today we'll primarily look at the way that 
Matthew fits in with another group of gospels called the synoptic gospels, how his text has a particular perspective, uh, a particular um, point of view with respect to who Jesus is and how that relates to the other uh, two gospels in the synoptics. When I say the synoptic gospels, I'm talking about uh, the three gospels in the New Testament that can be read together. That's what the word synoptic means, S-Y-N, together, optic, to see. Uh, in Greek, these are the three uh, texts that basically tell the same story, have the same narrative. Uh, they begin early in Jesus' ministry. Uh, they have texts that are word for word, right, you know, as if they were copying from each other. Uh, and so oftentimes people will, um, people will read these gospels together just to see how it is that, you know, let's say Luke, when writing the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you, you, I want you to know that Luke has a Sermon on the Mount in uh, his gospel. It's word for word, pretty much uh, what Jesus says. There are a few variations. Interestingly, though, uh, Luke calls his uh, perspective on this the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is giving that sermon in a place up near Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile country. Matthew, on the other hand, has Jesus giving this sermon on the mount, you know, Jesus on a mountain speaking <clears throat> to the people below him. Just the comparison of those two stories uh, coming from a common text, you know, so when Matthew and Luke were writing, they were probably using a common text, but they were adding nuances to that text to appeal to their particular audience. We well, can imagine Jesus speaking from a mountain, what kind of image that recalls, right? This is Moses. This is Moses bringing a new covenant to a people at the foot of Mount Sinai, let's call it metaphorically, um, but it's a different group of people. It's not a group of Hebrews necessarily, but it's a new covenant that is open to the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. But we can see in Matthew's gospel that Matthew kind of struggles with that a little bit because there are strands of literature in Matthew's gospel that seem to have, you know, that he wants nothing to do with the Gentiles. He, he thinks that Jesus doesn't come for the Gentiles. Uh, and we'll look at a couple of those texts where Jesus actually looks at the Gentiles as being, you know, kind of low lives, really, you know, why, you know, why love those who can only love you back, Jesus says, even the Gentiles can pull that off, you know, does that sound like Jesus? <laughs> you know? So this is a strand of literature in Matthew's gospel that is obviously directed at a particular community. So today, um, I want to talk a little bit, as I have in the past, uh, but I don't think we've recorded these things, but this will be a general introduction to uh, historical criticism and what it is that scholars do when they read a gospel and they try to ask a number of questions uh, that pertain to the gospel. Now, our, our common understanding is that, you know, if you're reading a text of scripture, uh, this is Rembrandt's view of Matthew here, writing down his gospel. And if we, you've got this beautiful 
uh, cherub-like angels speaking into his ear. And he's basically just, you know, writing down everything the angel has to say. Um, the angel, literally, uh, angelos, meaning the messenger of God. So Matthew is basically, according to this uh, perspective, just a conduit for the words of God, right? This is uh, Matthew writing uh, the gospel coming directly from the mouth of God. This serves a very uh, uh, literal interpretation of scripture quite well, because if God, being who God is, uh, is completely without blemish and completely consistent and the God of truth, we can imagine no contradiction. We can imagine no conflict in the person of God. Well, that raises a lot of problems then when there are conflicts in the text of the Bible itself, whether internally in a gospel or when comparing that gospel to uh, another gospel. So when textual critics, and when I use the word critic here, I don't mean somebody who's trying to point out everything that's wrong with the gospel, but people who are applying the rules of what are, what's known as literary criticism, uh, coming at the text with certain uh, presuppositions about you know, uh, when a text was written, <clears throat> what kind of clues can we find about uh, the author's intention? They come at this text with a number of, um, uh, a number of questions. For example, uh, when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, when was this text written? Was it when Jesus was alive? Was somebody following Jesus around, you know, writing down every every word that he was saying. Well, even Rembrandt didn't believe that because he's got Matthew uh, writing his gospel uh, with the angels speaking into his ear. So most likely it was afterwards. Matthew was writing the gospel afterwards, but how long afterwards? Well, if we read the text, we can find clues in the text as to when this may have occurred. And what we're looking at roughly is a time period of around 85 of the common era. Now, if you <clears throat> understand that Jesus was crucified somewhere between 29 and 32 of the common era, uh, you know, we don't have an exact date for that. In fact, uh, we don't even have a Roman record of that. So we, we have a hard time knowing just when Jesus would have been uh, crucified, but we think it was somewhere around 29 to 32 of the common era. Um, if we understand that that's the time when Jesus lived, and now we know that Matthew is writing <clears throat> roughly 50 to 55 years later, then we have to say, okay, from a human perspective, you know, a lot can transpire in that time. So what has transpired at that time right up to the point of 85, at which time Matthew or the author of Matthew feels that it's important to write a text and to record something for posterity's sake. Uh, then other questions asked are, need to be asked. Who, who was this written for? You know, these, these gospels, when Matthew was sitting down to write, he didn't say to himself, hey, I think I'm gonna write a book of the Bible. You know, <laughs> this is just like a general universal text that uh, uh, everybody can read. And no, no, Matthew was writing to a particular audience. You know, in our study of the book of Revelation, uh, John, John of Patmos is writing to seven churches and he's 
addressing issues that are happening in those seven churches. So the same with Matthew. Matthew is going to be writing to a group of people uh, who have particular questions about Jesus. Uh, and one of the big questions is, is Jesus a Messiah just for the Jews? Or is Jesus a Messiah for everybody? You know, by this time, when Matthew is writing, 85, Paul has already written his uh, primary uh, letters you know, to Romans and to First um, and Second Corinthians and to uh, Galatians and to Philippians, uh, Philemon, First um, Thessalonians. These texts were probably already circulating and have been circulating in the churches for maybe about 20 years. And Paul is making an extraordinary argument. Paul is saying that Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews, yes, but also for the Gentiles. Well, if you're a Jewish person following Jesus as the Messiah, that's a hard thing to get a grasp on. And so when we look at Matthew's gospel, we're going to see conflict going on. There are some texts that are going to emphasize that Jesus is a Messiah just for the Jews. And other texts are going to emphasize that Jesus is the Messiah for the world. You know, when you think of that great commission that concludes Matthew, go into all of the world and preach the gospel in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, that is definitely a universalizing tendency. But we're going to see in Matthew that there are texts that aren't quite so universal. And what this represents is that the author of this text is trying to work out some of these arguments and some of these uh, problematic issues with a particular community. And, um, it, you know, doesn't always end up being entirely consistent. What he is consistent about, though, is that Jesus is about as Jewish as you can get. He is, in many ways, uh, the, new, the new Moses. So why do we want to look at Moses and Matthew <laughs> uh, in conjunction with each other? Is because essentially they have uh, the same uh, goal in mind. <clears throat> they want to emphasize that a new covenant has been introduced into the world. And for Moses, this covenant is going to be one that is going to uh, give people guidelines as to what it means to be truly human, to, to, uh, to, to get rid of all the dross and, and get to the gold of, of the image of God that lives deep within us. Follow the covenant commands and you will be the human you were created to be. Well, after a bit of time, however, um, <clears throat> things kind of fall apart. There has to be a new covenant that's established, and it's going to be Matthew's task to say that new covenant is established by a new Moses, and his name is Jesus of, of Nazareth. So um, let me just stop there and see if there are any questions, and I might want to try to find my, <laughs> my phone because I won't know what time it is. <laughs> Don't be me. I should have been prepared. Are there any questions about this so far? 
Okay, well, let's let's then talk about the Synoptic Gospels. I I, I find this study fascinating because you know it, it says so much about what people uh, do when trying to establish um, a tradition. You know, you can imagine. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, The Life of Brian. Yes. <laughs> There's a, there's a point in the life of Brian where Brian, who's this, this figure that is living a life simultaneously or concurrently with Jesus. This isn't a story about Jesus. It's a story about Jews living in the time of Jesus who are searching for a Messiah. And, and, and Brian starts to tell this parable, but then in the middle of the parable, he's, he, he doesn't feel the need that he has to say anymore because the Romans have been trying to get him. And so he just starts to walk away and he leaves the parable uh, unresolved. So people start following him around, say, hey, what, tell us about what's happening in this parable. What, what's the conclusion? And he just runs away. And immediately the people come up with two different perspectives. He wants us to follow this sacred gourd. No, he slipped his sandal and he wants <laughs> us to take off his shoe and, and walk. And, and so immediately, after the telling of this parable, there are two paths that just diverge, you know. Um, the same thing happens in the time of Jesus. Uh, you have human beings inspired by God, of course, but still carrying some of the, you know, the imperfections of what we all carry as, as human beings, uh, trying to establish for themselves who Jesus was. The author of Matthew is going to be a uh, going to give testimony to the development of one strand of literature that takes place over fifty a fifty year period of time. But there are many perspectives. Uh, Christianity was not a monolithic teaching tradition in the um, in the first fifty well in the first two hundred years really. There were many Christianities. In fact, even as I say that, I need to point out that the term Christianity wasn't even used uh, in the time of Jesus. It wasn't used till much later, in the, you know, about the second century. So when I tell students Jesus was not a Christian, it really <laughs> upsets them, right? But, but, but it is an anachronism, really, to think of Jesus as a Christian because the term wasn't used, you know, for uh, the followers of Jesus for a good 100 years after the time of Christ. So one thing to keep in mind is that there are many gospels out there. The recent discoveries in Nag Hammadi and at Qumran, uh, but mostly Nag Hammadi, have led us to realize, um, well, actually not at Qumran at all, but at Nag Hammadi in Egypt, have led us to realize that there are many gospels that were being written. At some point in the history of the church, uh, a man by the name of Irenaeus in around 175 of the Common Era established for the church four gospels. And his criteria for doing, his criterion for doing this is that um, there are four winds, there are four directions, you know, there are, uh, so there must be four gospels. It's a nice square number, right? And so, he chose the gospels that were most likely being read uh, most predominantly in the churches and they ended up being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
and there's uh, there's something ingenious about this choice because Marks. they represent uh, a number of different perspectives on Jesus, but tries to try to bring them together and to harmonize them. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Was that the uh, was that the order in which they were written? Actually, no. Uh, Matthew was written after Mark. So the order in which we are written is Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and then John. Well, then why, and this is a question that comes to us in our historical mind, well, why don't you put the earliest gospel first? You know, why doesn't it become Mark first, and then Matthew, Luke, and then John? Uh, it's because there is a logical chronology uh, what we might call a theological chronology that necessitates that Matthew come first as a gospel. If we were looking at the New Testament, if we we're looking at these gospels as a bridge from the Old Testament, and now a new covenant has begun, it's what a New Testament means, really, it's a new covenant that has been established, then the best gospel for doing that is going to be Matthew. Why? because you can't get through the first two or three chapters of Matthew without all of these references to Old Testament texts. Matthew is clearly placing Jesus in the context of what it means uh, to be a Jew, a Jew living under a new covenant. So it makes theological sense, not necessarily chronological sense, but theological sense that Matthew come first. Let's draw the connection a very important connection between the church and its Jewish predecessors. So um, these are the four gospels that are, are established by Irenaeus and three of them, <clears throat> excuse me, three of them appear to have some really important similarities to them so much so that they were probably written together. You know, they, they seem to have been written almost you know, with the knowledge of each other. In today's, uh, today's perspective, we would say they copied each other, you know, that they're creating a, a plagiarism problem, you know? So Matthew had Mark in his hand when he was reading it. But what happened before then? Uh, let's just, when we talk about the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, let's remember that those are three gospels that can be read together. They have uh, similar texts to them and they appeared to have had knowledge of each other in some ways, or at least I should say Matthew and Luke had knowledge of Mark. John is its own, own uh, entity. But what was happening in the first 50 years after Jesus? Well, remember, Jesus appears to have been an apocalyptic prophet. This, is, this was the assumption that Jesus would be returning soon. You know, I tell you truly, there are some standing among you who will not pass away this generation before they see the coming of the son of man in glory. Um, well, that's what the early church was expecting. And so the way they transmitted their stories about Jesus was through oral transmission. They told stories about Jesus. Um, they weren't writing things down for a number of reasons. First of all, 
they didn't feel like writing things down for posterity's sake was important because, hey, Jesus was coming back. Who, who wants to take time to write these things out? You know, uh, we need to get out, get the word out. Second, because writing was uh, something that many of them probably did not know how to do. We were, were talking about Jewish peasants here. So oral traditions would have been part of their, uh, you know, their, the way they educated themselves about the Torah, for example. Um, <clears throat> but then after that first generation or so began to pass away, people started to write a number of Jesus sayings down. Jesus said this, and Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And then, and so just a list of sayings that have absolutely no narrative context or anything. And scholars have come to find this group of texts in the gospels of Matthew and the gospel of Luke, and they've called it just simply a saying source. Mark doesn't have it, but Matthew and Luke appear to have had a text in front of them that has a number of sayings in it. And you know what they do is they take Mark's text and then they sprinkle in these sayings and then they create their own text, okay? So around 55, this Q source seems to have been um, you know, available. And then 70, 70 is a, a monumental year in the history of the, the Jews. And that, that's the year that the, the temple is destroyed. And it appears that it was this event that seems to have uh, precipitated the writing of a more narrative form of a gospel. And this was the gospel of Mark that was written around 70 of the common era. And then about 15 years after that, Matthew and uh, Luke as well uh, write their gospels. So it, it moves from an oral tradition to a, a list of sayings, and then finally to a narrative context. So this is what scholars look like. And so this is what the, the uh, process looks like to scholars. Um, here's that, that text called Q, just a source of sayings written around 55 of the Common Era. Uh, and here's the Gospel of Mark written around 70. When Matthew sat down to write his Gospel, he had the Gospel of Mark in front of him, and he had this saying source in front of him as well. But here's the important thing for us. He also had access to a community tradition uh, called M. I don't know if you can see M down here, uh, but uh, M is the community to which Matthew most likely was writing this gospel. And it is a, you know, I'd say maybe 15% of Matthew's gospel consists of sayings that cannot be found anywhere else. They're just not found anywhere else. Uh, and so when we, uh, when we look at this next time, uh, on next Sunday, what we're going to do, excuse me, what we're gonna do next Sunday is look at some of this M material. Uh, the best place to start with this is in the, uh, the birth story, the birth story of, uh, of Jesus. First couple of chapters of Matthew, material that's exclusive to Matthew. So the same process takes place for the gospel of Luke as well. When Luke sat down to write his gospel, he had Mark in front of him. He also had this 
cue source, the saying source in front of him. But then he also had material that was uh, absolutely unique, excuse me, to a community to which he was writing. What we're gonna find out is this M material comes from a largely Jewish Christian community. People who were Jews, who felt that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, they were still practicing as Jews who believed Jesus was Messiah. That is material that we find in Matthew. Luke, on the other hand, is going to incorporate material from a Gentile Christian community. Uh, so comparing Luke and Matthew is really interesting. If we wanted to ask ourselves, well, who, who was the community to which each of these authors was writing? We would say very clearly, well, uh, you know, it was uh, a, a Jewish Christian community for Matthew and a Gentile Christian community for Luke. And we could isolate those texts that were particularly unique to Luke and unique to Matthew. And we could compare what Christianity looked like to these two communities. And they're quite, the, the differences are quite stark. So let me, I keep going back and forth. Uh, let me stop and see if there are any questions about this. Damon probably knows this. He probably saw this in seminary many times, right? Yeah, yep, seminary and, and undergrad. Uh, undergrad, right, yeah. This yep. is, this is uh, the classic two-source hypothesis, which has been around now for over 100 years. Uh, it's not wide, it's not 100% not you know, accepted, but most scholars accept some form of this uh, uh, paradigm for understanding how the gospels were, synoptic gospels were written. Yeah, there's also, um, so I, I guess two things. One, I wanted to let you know, Dan, that the time is now 9.47. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> That's helpful. That's helpful. Well, I need to start clipping along then, yeah. okay? Uh, there's also... Um, we didn't do this in undergrad, but in seminary, uh, we played a lot with, uh, at least in our newer Testament classes, um, uh, it's called the gospel parallels. Right. And right. It, it's, uh, which is a really kind of, I don't know if fun is the right word. <laughs> I no, thought it yeah. was fun. Um, yeah. Like it, it takes um, the three synoptic gospels and it sort of, and it organizes them in a way so that they, their stories line up. Right. Um, and so you can really quickly and easily, and then like we would go through, okay, in red, underline in red, all the things that show up in all three, underline in black, the things that are just Matthew and different color for the things that are just Luke, but it really helps you really visually, really quickly to say, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I can see really clearly and, and obviously the differences in these texts and, and what shows up in one doesn't show up in another where it does, but they changed this word. Um, and that sort of thing. So if anybody's really curious about digging into this, um, it's called the Gospel Parallels. And do we have a copy it. of it in the library? I don't know if we do or not. I can check and see though. It, it's interesting. It sets it up in three, three uh, columns, basically. Here's Mark, here's Matthew, and here's Luke. And let's say the story of the Transfiguration, which appears in all three of uh, the Gospels. Uh, you can see how Matthew, Mark, and Luke almost tell that story the exact same way, word for word, every little line, except, you know, there might be one word that's changed. 
right? Uh, there might be a couple you know, phrases that are left out. And then that raises the question, okay, well, why if, Mark, if, if Matthew had Mark in front of him, why did he leave this phrase out and Luke and Mark did not, you know? And, and once you start pulling at the thread of that question, you're starting to ask about the theology that's informing the author. A theology informed by faith, of course, but one that, uh, you know, that's saying, you know, what Mark and Luke have said over here, I don't want necessarily to emphasize this in my community. It's, it's fascinating. And, um, and it, it is, like Damon says, you, you play with it, I guess, in seminary. And so when uh, Damon and Greg are writing their sermons, sometimes you may have occasion uh, let me just say today's sermon on Matthew 25 uh, verses 1 through 12, that's completely immaterial, cannot be found in Mark or Luke. And so uh, what is it about this parable of the 10 bridesmaids, also referred to as the 10 virgins, that uh, performed a service to this Mathean community that was being, you know, that to which it was being uh, presented? Uh, that's how biblical scholars work with this uh, kind of thing. So, so uh, let's just look at the synoptics in their broader context. And I'll, I'll go over this very uh, quickly, but to try to give you a timeline of when the texts of the New Testament are being written, there's one text in the New, that is not a New Testament text, but is really, really important for us for understanding what the early church looked like. It was, it's called the Didache which in Greek simply means a teaching. And why it was not included in the New Testament canon, I have no idea. But if you want to know what early Jewish followers of Jesus were doing in their churches, how they were inviting their, uh, how they were doing their confirmation services, you might say, baptizing people, the Didache is the text to write. Also remember, that even before any of these gospels are written, Paul has already written his epistles or his, what are known as his authentic epistles, Romans, 1 Corinthians, you know, and, and on, um, between 48 and, and 60. Around 55, that source of sayings comes to be written. Then later, Mark's gospel in 70 of the common era. And then Matthew and Luke use Mark's gospel and, the, and sayings and they write their own gospels. And then the Gospel of John is written about 70 years after Jesus, uh, along with the book of Revelation. And then come what we call the Deutero-Pauline epistles, epistles that are written in Paul's name, but do not appear to have been written by Paul himself. So we have Ephesians, we have Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, uh, Titus. They have a very, very Romanesque uh, uh, nuance to them that doesn't appear to have been uh, the case in, in Paul. Just give me an example of this. In Paul's uh, epistle to the Corinthians, he basically tells the Corinthians, hey, don't go get married because Jesus is coming soon. First Corinthians 7, you can look it up. You don't, Damon, did you have this at your wedding? Did you have this text uh, read at your wedding? Probably not, right? It, it was among the finalists. Uh, we chose to go in a different direction. <laughs> basically, basically, Paul says, hey, don't get married. I mean, don't, why waste your time? on? I'm, I'm, I'm being rather uh, 
free with the text here, but, but, you know, Jesus is coming soon, but if you really have to, if you're really burning in your loins and you, you know, you, you, know, you, can't, <laughs> you, know, you can't appease yourself sexually. I don't want you going out having it, you know, sex with, with temple prostitutes. So yes, marry somebody so you can serve each other's sexual needs. But really, you know, our focus should be on the gospel. So Paul basically says in his primary uh, epistles, don't, don't get married unless you have to. It's this kind of a stopgap. But when you get down to Deuter the Deuteropauline epistles, now you have the focus on the nuclear family and how important it is for the man, you know, to be a uh, husband of, of a, a wife and wives have to be submissive to their husbands and all those things that women just love to hear so much. <laughs> So there, there's a lot of development going on. Well, where does Matthew fit into this development? Um, I also wanted to point out that we don't have any of these texts. The earliest extant full gospel text that we have comes from a, um, a Bible that was found at the foot of, uh, in a monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's been indispensable in biblical uh, research for the last, you know, several hundred years, and that's called Codex Sinaiticus. This is a copy of the text itself, but you can see the Greek, uh, it's Old Testament and New Testament, written in four columns, and this is as close as we can come to a, you know, a full gospel text that is written close to the time of Jesus. Before that, we just have, you know, little fragments like, like this here. So a lot can happen, you know, especially when the church becomes, um, you know, a primary Im Im imperial, uh, I, guess, I guess, an arm of the imperial government, and then theology starts to become law, and law becomes theology. Uh, we've probably lost a lot of the early understandings of, of who Jesus was, you know, based upon some of these uh, early gospel texts. So what are some of the unique features of that, Matthew? Well, first of all, and I won't go over this, this is an old theory, but when you read Matthew's gospel, it's set up in five different discourses of Jesus. The first of these is one we're all familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, and then what follows is a number of discourses, parables, uh, that try to explain, uh, you know, some of the ethical aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. And there are five of these throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Um, this is a, a theory that has been somewhat challenged because uh, the five discourses do not include, A, the birth stories, nor do they include the passion narrative of Jesus dying on the cross. Um, but what gives this theory credence is that the Q material also has no reference to the passion narrative. So the early sayings of Jesus, now try to wrap your head around this. The early sayings of Jesus written around 55 of the common era make no mention of Jesus dying on the cross or his resurrection for that matter. That comes later. <laughs> that comes maybe 30 years later. Interestingly, the Gospel of Mark has a very, very short reference to, in fact, it doesn't have a resurrection reference. It just has women finding the tomb empty and the end. That's how Mark ends. 
it's not until you get to Matthew and Luke that you have a story of, of Jesus being resurrected and, and, and appearing to the apostles. Um, now, at the same time, we do have Paul talking about Jesus being resurrected, and he's been writing about that prior to this time. But when we look at what's unique to Matthew, and this is what I want to focus on in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the theology and ethics of that M community. Now, going back here to our this, this little circled area over here called M, that was a community of what appears to be Jewish followers of Jesus uh, that had a very unique perspective on the world. First of all, one of the things that's somewhat disappointing about this is that there are texts in Matthew that seem to suggest a very negative attitude about the Gentiles. Now, we, we've always thought, you know, well, the Gen you know, Jesus came for the Gentiles, right? We, we see it in Luke. We definitely see it in John. God loves the world. But when we read some of these texts uh, from the M community that appear only in the M community, we get a sense that there's a community there that's still just a little bit you know, not completely convinced that the Gentiles are part of this new covenant. So let me read. Um, and if we greet only your brothers and sisters, Jesus says in chapter 547, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. <laughs> so using the Gentiles is a bad example. Hey, Gentile can do that. Just love people that they love. You know, uh, Matthew 18 let me read this. And I, I don't like doing this spot checking of verses because this, this tends to look like uh, proof texting, right? Um, but I, I guess I just have to ask you to trust what I'm saying, that the verses that I'm reading are exclusive to this, this gospel and to this community itself. So 1817. If the remember refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen to the church, let such a one to you as a gent uh, let such a one be to you as a gentile or a tax collector. So <laughs> actually, I should probably put that. I should put that in an, in, a, in in its context. I'll read the whole pericope. If another member of the church, and by the way, this word church is also part of the M community. Believe it or not, in all of the Gospels, the only place the word church appears is in this M material. Mark doesn't talk about the church. Luke does not. John does not, right? The church, ekklesia in Greek, literally those who have been called out, those who have been set apart. You can just the Greek word emphasizes its um, its it's Jewish nature, right? The Jews saw themselves as people who were set apart as a covenant community. This word church, ecclesia, sees Christians as those who are set apart, called out to be a separate community. So let's talk about the, uh, what Jesus says, and he's giving in instructions to the church here. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. 
If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Actually, this is right out of Deuteronomy, almost. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. <laughs> the Gentiles and the tax collectors are put, put on the same level. <laughs> Any questions about this or comments? Well, I'm sorry. Um, this is Dan. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, not a question or comment, but the, the time is now 10.02. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know, we're going to be reading from Matthew 25 here <laughs> fairly soon. Uh, but I, I do want to point out that Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which I believe is going to be uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, two weeks, right? Not this Sunday, but two weeks from now is going to make a similar kind of reference to uh, the Gentiles. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention it when that time comes. Here's something that's interesting too. Jesus in, at the end of Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, tells his disciples to go and preach to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not immaterial, by the way, but if you read what Jesus says to his disciples about going out and preaching, it seems somewhat um, contrary to what we just heard. Uh, let me see. I'm, I'm just going to read so we can put it in a narrative context here. I'm reading from chapter 10. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles first, and then we go down the, the names of the 12 apostles. Um, these 12, Jesus set out with the following instructions. Now, read, listen to these instructions clearly, closely. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no <laughs> town of the Samaritans. What? <laughs> Wait, hold on, Jesus. Haven't you heard the story of the woman at the well? And, you know... Uh, <laughs> Oh, this is, this is coming from that Matthean community that wants nothing to do with him. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, and then moving on to chapter or verse 23, <clears throat> and you'll be here at all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Well, that doesn't make sense. What am I doing here? I'm missing something here. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, I guess I, I've got one of my verses wrong. But, but the main point I'm trying to make is in five, uh, verses 5 and 6. Don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Jews. Um, kind of hard to reconcile with what we know about the other Gospels, you know. But taken in a whole, we see that there is this very Jewish nuance to the Gospel that you have to keep in mind as you're reading Matthew. 
Another aspect of Matthew that's really important for us to understand is the preeminence of Peter. Most likely, this M material that we're talking about comes from the preaching of Peter. And we know this because if you, well, actually, if you go out into Christians today and, and you say to them, hey, so who is Jesus' favorite disciple? Apostle. Uh, oh, well, uh, Peter, of course. I mean, frankly, I mean, shoes. I mean, do you just see it in all the gospels? Well, no, you don't. <laughs> if you read the gospel of John, Peter is just a lummock. He's just a, a dumb as an ox, you know? <laughs> he never gets anything Jesus is saying. <laughs> in fact, in John, there's this, there's a, a character known as the beloved disciple. Uh, and we presume it's John, who is the author, supposedly the author of the gospel itself. But when you read Matthew, Peter is the one who gets it all, right? And um, <clears throat> Peter is the one to whom Jesus uh, gives authority. And so it comes to that, that classic example, and I think it's 16. Uh, give me one second here. And so these two places found only in Matthew where Peter is, is kind of exalted by Jesus. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus is walking across the water and Peter is out there showing himself to be this man of great faith, right? I'll come out there with you. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the way on the water and came towards Jesus. <clears throat> But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Well, that doesn't necessarily say anything great about Peter, other than the fact that he was the one who was getting out of the boat he had enough faith to walk on the water. No, the other 11 were like, I ain't doing that. I'm not getting <laughs> middle of a storm like this. <laughs> but Peter was able to do it. Now here's the one that's probably the most important because it still has, uh, it still has importance for us today. And I'm gonna read it starting from uh, verse 13 all the way to the end of the pericope. And this is Peter's, um, proclamation of Jesus as Messiah. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That response of Jesus to Peter cannot be found anywhere else other than Matthew. Now, the story, who do people say that I am, and, you know, the disciples say this, that can be found in Mark and in Luke. But this response where Peter is given authority by Christ 
uh, is exclusive to Matthew. Now, this is very important for us because it's on this exclusive text alone that the Roman Catholic Church establishes its authority. Their, um, uh, you know, their authority uh, from Christ goes directly back to the first Pope, Peter. Well, it's only one gospel that says that P Peter was this person who, who was given this authority by Christ, you know, that the gates of hell shall not be, prevail against him. Um, what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that Matthew's community was primarily a group of, of Jewish Petrine Christians. Their tradition could probably be traced back to the preaching of Peter in the early years of, of, of the church. And they hold Peter, Peter in high regard. And for this reason, uh, many people say that this gospel probably was not written by Matthew himself, but it's attributed to uh, the disciple named Matthew, uh, but probably written around in Antioch uh, where there was a very strong Petrine, in other words, a, a community associated uh, with Peter. So let me let me stop and see if there are any any more questions. What time do we got now, Damon? <clears throat> the time is now ten ten. All right, <clears throat> five minutes. Good. Any questions? <laughs> well, what are some of the central uh, concerns of the Petrine community? <clears throat> Keeping the law. Now this doesn't this doesn't square up with what we know about you know, Paul and, and the emphasis that the Gentiles are no longer beholden to or bound by the law. But certainly Jesus is telling, according to this tradition, his followers that they have to follow the Jewish law. So let me read here. Do not think, says Jesus, only found in Matthew here. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke, uh, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Interesting, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees. Um, the law is not something to be set aside. This was a big problem in the church, all right? If Jesus comes to bring a new covenant, does that mean the law has been abolished or set aside? You know that Paul is already preaching this or has preached this, you know, several years before, 25 years before to Gentile churches. Need to get circumcised before you become a Christian? Nah, don't worry about that. Not important, not under this new covenant. Well, if you were gonna become a Christian in the Jewish community that we're talking about here and if you were male you would have to undergo that very painful <laughs> ritual uh, act of circumcision because that's how you become a child of the covenant you become bar mitzvah a son of the covenant um, 
So you can see the conflict that was probably going on. Um, there's an ethical perfectionism that's required. And that ethical perfectionism is in relation to the law. Chapter five, verse 21 through um, uh, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So what's, what Jesus is doing in this section, chapter five, is he's offering an annotation, a commentary on the 10 commandments. And hey, it's easy not to kill people. But now under this new covenant, you followers in under the new covenant, even if you're angry, even if you lash out at somebody and call them dirty names like Sleepy Joe or, or whatever, <laughs> then you're liable to judgment. This law has not passed away. This law has been made all the more prominent in, in our lives. So this is the Matthew that we're talking about. And it's going to be this Matthew in the next couple of weeks that I want to take some time to, uh, to look at. Next time when we meet, uh, we will be looking at the birth stories and trying to place this story of Jesus uh, in the context of this community. Try to remember your understanding of the birth stories. And most likely you will recall, you know, the Christmas pageants where you've got the angel and the shepherds and the wise men all showing up in the same place. <laughs> no no uh, angel and shepherds in Matthew's story. Uh, it's an entirely, half of the story is told. Uh, the angels and shepherds are left to Luke. So next time we'll be looking at that. Uh, today's text uh, that you'll be hearing in just a few minutes is part of this M community. And I just wanted you to uh, recall that as you listen to the sermon, the story of the 10 uh, bridesmaids, also known as the 10 virgins, five of whom are, you know, keep their, keep their lamps trimmed and burning and they even bring extra oil. In other words, they're prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And five just kind of, nah, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll sleep a while. Um, this, was evidence of the fact that the M community was still awaiting the return of, of Christ, the return of the Messiah. So uh, kind of a quick ending there, but uh, does anybody have a question before we, we take off? I do, but I don't know where I'm on. Uh, I do, Dan. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the word church, as it comes through in that translation, uh, what would that be in Greek? In Greek, it's ek meaning out, where we get our word exit from, ek, and klesia from the verb kaleo, to call. Okay, I would have thought that was Latin, but, uh, but, but anyway, that, that word, I, I always am suspicious of it, and I wonder how many meanings it, it really might have if, if we were to break it down, and uh, to, to think of it as a formal structure of a church as we think of it now, looks very suspicious to me. But, uh... Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, it, there is a 
there's a very Jewish nuance to the, the Greek word. As the Jews were called apart to be a, a separate community, right? Separate from the Gentile world. So the church is called apart or called out to be its own exclusive community that does not follow the way of the Gentiles, as we've already seen here in Matthew, or at least in the M material of Matthew. So it's, it almost stands in contradiction to this idea of bringing all into the church, you know, um, at least ethically, we are to follow a pattern of uh, righteousness that is consistent with what uh, we've seen in the Jewish covenant. Now, I cannot remember the Latin word for church right now. It's uh, ecclesia, no? Yeah, ecclesia is, is the Latin, which is just a, you know, just a variation on, um, no, I guess they've used the same word. I can't remember the Latin word. I think it is ecclesia, but it's a Greek word. Yeah, okay. So uh, with that, go ahead, Dwight. Uh, I just said thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Well, with that, I think our time is upon us, and I will end our session here. Um, thank you all for showing up. Um, Major, Colonel Major, Kathy, I can't remember what you are. Colonel, maybe. Yeah, uh, I was a colonel. You're retired a colonel. Now. Colonel retired. Colonel retired. It's nice to have a colonel with us. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you, Dan. <laughs> thank and you so much for showing up. Thanks. Well, in, in one of these days, I want to know more about Irenaeus, but obviously not the topic of today, but. Oh, Irenaeus. I, he, yeah, a, I'm kind of curious, so I'll figure that one out. You mean, uh, the fact that he, um, that he chose the four Gospels? Yeah, yeah. Aspect, right, yeah. Yeah. What, what, uh, what gall that that guy can come in. I'm yeah. used to the ones, right? <laughs> yeah, how did he end up with the job? It's kind of a curious uh, historical thing fact i just yeah, and, it, and it's complex and it has a lot to do with uh, the martyrdom that was happening about that time too so uh we must be on our way so that damon can go out and and prepare and so i will um i guess i will be the one to uh to stop this whole little uh group of uh scholars and i will see you all um next sunday okay see you next sunday <laughs> thanks, thanks. Thank Bye. you. You know, uh, something I'm going to ask you about is uh, 